I know we've already prayed, but let's, let me just offer a word of prayer before we come to the Bible. Our Lord, we need the power of your Spirit. We don't look at your Word just because we like to be informed. We need to be transformed. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that this, uh, this story of Daniel would do the work that you designed for it to do, that it would raise up a generation of Daniels. So we, we, I pray this. Would you do that, Lord? I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, Daniel chapter 1, it's, I'm going to read the whole chapter and you'll understand why. It's a story. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashmanaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called, uh, he called Belteshazzar, Hanariah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear, my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuch had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke them, and among all of them none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom, 
And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. What a wonderful story, huh? I love that part about the um, fatter in flesh. The freshman 15 had, <laughs> has a heritage to it. I was, um, after I preached one Sunday, a college student came up to me. I love college students and I love questions. And this uh, college student had a particular question that I've heard many, many times before. And um, roughly speaking, it was like this. Why do I need to go to church? And obviously, as a pastor, you want to persuade the person they do need to go to church. And it can seem as if you have a little bit of a vested interest, you know. After all, you're the pastor of the church. And uh, this person said to me, you know, I've got a a Christian community. Uh, I have a Bible study group. I hear preaching. Why Why do I need to come to the local church? And what I did with that person is I uh, pointed them to a lot of anecdotal evidence that has happened down through the years through many college pastors like Pastor Ben and many across the country who have observed a distinct pattern. And the pattern is this. There is a correlation between a college student going to church while they are in college and that self-same college student after they graduate um, still following Jesus. It's not a one-to-one correlation, but there's a strong correlation. And so that's what I said to the student. And I think that's a good thing to say. But in a way, I wish I had done something else too. And that is, I wish I'd pointed that college student to the story of Daniel. See, Daniel, you see, was in a sense in college for three years. And uh, he was um, in Babylon... He had, to, he had been picked out of a whole line of different people to study there in this elite university, as it were. And yet Daniel was committed to God and his people. And what is more, Daniel, in that commitment, we're told in this story, did better than all the others. His grades were better. His career prospects were better. He landed a job in the palace. It would be like, I don't know, being headhunted by Microsoft or Apple or whatever it is. He did really well. But he didn't do really well by compromising to the ways of Babylon. He did really well by sticking to the ways of God and identifying himself with God's people. And that theme goes throughout Babylon, throughout the story of Daniel. He thrived, in other words, in college. Now, what was his secret? Well, I think in many ways uh, it can be summarized in a single word. Courage. Courage. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. 
dare to make it known. Courage. So my proposition is this. Every Christian can thrive at college and life when you dare to be a Daniel. And there are three aspects of this that I want to tease out for us from this passage. The first is to to think, and to think in a way that is um, imbued with, orientated around, shaped by the sovereignty of God, to think. Think, and then decide, and we'll explain that in a little bit, and then finally speak. Think, decide, speak. First, think. And as I say, there is this thread throughout this story of of God being sovereign. And in my study of this passage, when Daniel resolves himself not to defile himself for the royal food and wine and all the rest, it must be that the author of this book of Daniel is encouraging us to realize that what gave Daniel that resolve was his trust in, his thinking about, his world view, his commitment to the sovereign God, even in Babylon. And you say, well, this happened so long ago, 600 years before the time of Christ. We don't even know who wrote the book of Daniel. Indeed, I believe that um, you might say some modern scholars think that it isn't even real history. But actually, the questions that those critical scholars have long debated have been well answered by biblical scholars. The doubts about the book of Daniel really, in the end, it's not the only kind of doubt, but in the end, most of it comes down to doubting whether it's possible for anyone to predict the kingdoms of Greece and Rome from hundreds of years beforehand. But if you have a mind that is centered on the God of the Bible. Such prediction for the God of Daniel is no problem. No, this story is a real story. They have been taken off into exile. They're a long way away from mum and dad. Indeed, uh, even the uh, temple seemed to have failed. For the artifacts, at least some of them from the temple, have been taken to the house of the pagan god. All sorts of ways this passage indicates the temptation that Daniel and his friends must have had to believe that God had failed. You have King Jehoiakim at the beginning of the text, and then afterwards, throughout the text, every time the king is mentioned, it doesn't mean Jehoiakim, the Israelite king, it means the pagan king. He's the king. Deep. Failure, it must have appeared. Symbolically, all the power and glory seemed to have shifted to Babylon. For God's people, it was an age of exile. As the psalmist said, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, in Babylon, in that age of exile in which they lived? Now, what about us, you see? We live in different times. How can this be relevant to us? We uh, live in an information age. We literally have a world of data at our fingertips. 
And you say, well, why should I even go to college? I don't need to go to college to get information. I can just go to Google to get information. You go to college to learn, to think. You know, if I had a magic wand and I could wave it over the Christian church today, the one thing I would do was encourage God's people to think biblically. I cannot tell you the number of times I've had people come up to me after church or make an appointment to speak with me, tell me some idea that they've been convinced by. And when I delve into why they've been so convinced by this particular concept, I find it is because they've been watching a YouTube clip and the YouTube channel has hundreds of thousands of followers and therefore it must be true. Was it George Bernard Shaw who said some people would rather die than think? I mean, if, if, if the number of followers that, you, that the, the, the channel on YouTube has was the, the right definition of its truthfulness and its value, then cat videos were the best thing ever. We need to rediscover the art of Christian thinking you have a mind. And if you're a college student, the next few years or so, you will need to learn to use it even more and use it biblically. I don't want to oversay this, but in many ways, I think there's truth to this. In the same way there was for Daniel and Babylon. In many ways, the continued impact of the Christian church and even survival of what we've known as Western civilization depends upon people like you learning to think biblically. And in particular in this passage, it means learning to think biblically about God's sovereignty. There's a particular thread. I don't know whether you picked it out when I read out the passage. If you look down at verse 2, you'll see it. It says, and the Lord gave. You'll see the same thing in verse 9. And God gave. And then verse 17, and God gave. Exile, suffering. Yes, King Jehoiakim was a terrible king from a line of terrible kings, and Nebuchadnezzar was the one who invaded and took God's people into exile. So this is what humans did. It's human agency. And yet, verse 2, the Lord gave. The Lord gave. You say, how did the author of Daniel know that this exile is what God had given? Through prophecy and principle. God, through his prophet Isaiah, had predicted this exile. And Moses had taught the principle long ago that if God's people turned their backs on him, God would send them into exile. Ultimately then, though man proposes, God disposes, even with suffering. Success? Yes, Daniel acted in a particular wise and courageous way, but verse 9, it was God who gave him favor. Studies? Yes, Daniel and his friends no doubt worked hard, but verse 17, it was God who made them wiser than all the others. 
you will not have the courage you need to serve God until you learn to think of God as God. The sovereignty of God is the fuel to death-defying commitment to missions from Jim Elliott to Andrew Brunson. And it can be for you too. But you will need to learn to think of God as sovereign, the one who gave all these events then and now. This is the great issue throughout the book of Daniel. Who is the real king? Jehoiakim certainly was a failure. Is the real king Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the pagan ruler? Over and over again, the book of Daniel is written to show us that God is actually still God even today. Even in Babylon, even in a fiery furnace, even today, even in your marriage. Perhaps you're not happy with your marriage. The Lord gave your marriage. And then you'll stick to your spouse. The Lord gave it. Perhaps there's some issue at work. We're thinking about college students a lot, but of course we're a multi-generational church. Perhaps there's some issue at work, some moral compromise that you are facing and you might lose your job if you don't do something or do do something. The Lord gave. See, God's sovereignty does not work against human responsibility. God's sovereignty is the fuel that will give you the courage you need to stand up and be counted today. And God gave. Think. God is sovereign. Decide. It wasn't enough simply to have this worldview. Daniel had to do something, and they were under huge pressure. The four friends together in the king's palace were given new names. Those names represented pagan gods, of course. They take out the name of Yahweh and insert various names of different gods. What is more, they're clearly being indoctrinated into the ideology of Babylon. They're being taught, taught the, the latest postmodern ideology of the day. Nebuchadnezzar is, is, is deliberately using this as a tactic, almost certainly. He's, he's infiltrating the education of the day to shape the minds of the next generation. He's not the last ruler to attempt that tactic to win the future. So whether you're a college student, a grade school student, a parent, anyone interested in the future of the church or society, you'll want to know how to turn that tide, that tide of postmodern relativism where it doesn't matter what you think. It's fascinating to me to observe, because there is no ultimate truth, it's fascinating to me to observe how these things have shaped over the last 10, 15 years or so. When I was uh, an undergraduate at Cambridge, we were basically taught two propositions. No one said it, but this is the idea that was in the air. Number one, there is no absolute truth. 
And therefore, if anyone makes a claim to absolute truth, they're only making a power move. But since those days, a couple of other propositions have been added. If that is the case, number three, therefore the whole of society is only divided into the powerful oppressors and the powerless oppressed. Number four, therefore you cannot deny the perspective of the oppressed. For to do so is simply to oppress them even more. That is where we are. That is the Babylonian ideology in which we swim everywhere. And that is why our society is so divided, for there is no truth around which we can unite. That is why we're so hopeless, because the only thing you have to do is either climb to the top of some hierarchy out of a power move or jealously tip the person off the top of the hierarchy so that you can climb to the top instead. And what, I ask, is the point of any of that? That's the Babylonian ideology of our age. What do we do about it? Courage. Dare to be a Daniel. Look with me at verse 7. There we're told that the, uh, the chief of staff gave them new names, pagan, postmodern, if you like, names. Literally, though, it says the chief of staff put these names on them, and they don't object to that, you'll note. In fact, in other places in the Bible, people have pagan names, and they're known by those names, and there's no objection to that. Not ideal, but they go with that. But then in verse 8, the first time an Israelite is the subject of a main verb in this whole story. In other words, the first time an Israelite does something. Daniel literally puts a resolution in his heart. The chief of staff put names on them. Daniel put a resolution in his heart. He decided. Contemporary uh, preacher Sinclair Ferguson expressed this pivotal moment like this. I love the way he puts it. It's really influenced me. I want to read it out for you. Daniel had found one of the great biblical secrets of spiritual success that was better known to our forefathers than it is to us. Now, when you say spiritual success, you kind of think, well, is this some sort of weird prosperity gospel thing? But this is Sinclair Ferguson. And if anyone on the face of the planet is not tempted by prosperity gospel, it's Sinclair Ferguson. Daniel had found one of the great biblical secrets of spiritual success that was better known to our forefathers than it is to us. What is that, Sinclair? Here's what he said. He entered into a solemn covenant in the presence of God that he would turn away from sinful behavior in whatever form it presented itself. That's where all spiritual success comes from, this solemn covenant, this pivotal moment of decision. Now you may ask, as many others have done, why did Daniel take his stand here? 
Some say it is because the king's food was defiled by contact with idol worship. But if that was the case, the same would be true of the vegetables. Vegetables were used in idol worship too. Some say it's because Daniel was determined to eat only kosher food and maintain a ritual purity. But if that was the case, it would not include wine, which Daniel also refused. No, the point is that he drew a line. This far, no further. Uh, It may have been something of an arbitrary line, but that didn't matter. What mattered was that he was taking a stand for God. You see, in all these things going around in your life today, all the pressures that maybe you feel to perform at college or to do well at work or for your, your kids to do well, whatever those pressures that you face to, 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 to make the most of the investment that your parents have put in you at college, whatever the, the temptations and difficulties we all face as we go through life, it can seem too much. You, you cannot resist it all. Even being given pagan names was okay. But you have to take a stand somewhere. You have to covenant in your heart in the solemn presence of God this far and no further. You say, what sort of thing could it be? It could be determining to get to church not just on time but early. Lombardi time, as the famed coach of the Green Bay Packers used to call it. It could be determining to take one less extracurricular activity so you can have time to serve in church. It could be determining to go to bed by a certain time each evening so you can be awake to get up each morning to read the Bible. It could be any number of things. What it is matters much less than that it is. It could be determining to increase your giving by a little bit each month so that in a few months you really are giving a tithe. It could be like D.L. Moody famously determined, telling at least one person each day about Jesus. What matters is not what it is, but that it is. What matters is that you make this personal covenant with God, this resolution that you will turn away from sinful behavior in whatever form it presents itself, as Sinclair Ferguson put it. So we must think, we must decide, but then we must speak. Daniel alone dares to speak up. He's in a dining room far away from his parents. And out of the conviction of his heart, he utters words of conviction. This is the moment when Daniel becomes a hero. The roots of present heroism are found in past faithfulness, and the foundation of public heroism is private faithfulness too. You know, some of us are heroes in our own imagination, bravely taking a stand before thousands of people to popular acclaim. Sounds great. Everyone will cheer. But a real-life heroism is built on the foundation of private decisions where no one sees and expressed in little-known ways a long distance from Jerusalem 
even in Babylon, about something that other people would not think was that important. Having a biblical worldview, think, and a biblical conviction, decide, would remain in the world of theory and so not make any real difference unless it is acted upon and expressed. Speak, as Daniel does here. It reminds me of the, the little somewhat silly story. I, I like it, though. It makes the point of, of the farmer who observed three birds sitting on a, on a, on a telephone wire. He said to a friend of his this, he said, uh, all th- uh, th- those three birds and two of them decide to fly south. How many of them are left? And the friend says, well, one, one's left. The farmer says, no, you're wrong. All three are left. They've decided, but they haven't done anything about it. It reminds me of one or two committee meetings I've been in. <laughs> Daniel did not only decide... He spoke at this pivotal moment in the heart of the passage. And how wisely he spoke. He approaches the official with respect. He asks him. He doesn't demand of him. He's humble. He asks. You know, making a decision, take a stand, should not be done with arrogance or rudeness. Not for the, not for the Christian. Some people are not principled in a biblical sense. They're just rude or stubborn. Not Daniel. A Christian disciple should express his or her convictions with gentleness, respect, kindness. And then what's more, when the official voices some understandable hesitation, he says, you know, the king will have my head. Not a a groundless fear for, for what we know about the bloodiness of King Nebuchadnezzar, in all likelihood a real fear. Daniel comes up with a simple test. It's a 10-day trial. (laughs) I guess it's a a bit like an extended America's Got Talent audition. Or Babylon's Got Talent, perhaps. After all, what does Daniel know at this moment? It could be that it was not God's will that he would be healthier afterwards, but Daniel is trusting that as he makes this covenant with God, then God will bless that decision. Daniel, as John Calvin put it, is also putting his neck on the line. He's risking his head, too, by speaking this way. I uh, remember the moment when I received my acceptance letter to college sometime back in the Middle Ages. I was uh, working on a pig farm to the north of London in England. And the letter was forwarded to me to that address. And I remember taking it outside, unopened, knowing that at that moment my life was going to go in one of two directions. Before I opened the letter, I deliberately said something to God. I said, I promise that if you'll send me to Cambridge, I'll spend my time telling people about you. I opened the letter, I'd been accepted, and I took that promise as a solemn covenant with God. But you know, that decision did not become real until in the first week of school I was approached by the captain of a particular sports team, and I was then quite good at this particular sport, though it's hard for me to believe that these days, or probably for you to believe it either. And they actually wanted me on the team. 
There was one catch. The initiation. To be a part of this team, you had to join something that was called the 21 Club. Why, you ask, was it called the 21 Club? Because, I say, in order to be a part of this uh, team and go through the initiation and therefore to be a part of the 21 Club, in one evening you had to drink 21 pints of beer. I uh, went up to this captain and said to him, I could not do that. I remember his face as he looked at me, shocked and more than a little annoyed. Who is this young guy and who does he think he is? Why can't you do that? Because, I said, I'm a Christian. I remember his face. Okay. And that was it. I'd drawn a line in the sand. This far, no further. What about you? You know, it's very important that decision is made early and spoken at the first opportunity. It gets harder the more you delay. The next few weeks here at church, we're going to be exploring ways to be a Daniel today. Next week, we'll look at why go to church and our plans as a church over the next year or so. We'll be looking in a sense of what God is doing here and how we think he's leading us. That's going to be an important weekend. I encourage you to be here. And then we'll have a series on cross and culture as we exposit what the Bible says about really significant things in our time like sexuality and race. These are important days. We must think, we must decide, we must speak. I must preach God's word on these things. You know, it's not an exaggeration to say that all of Daniel's usefulness throughout his whole famous life pivoted on this one moment of decision and speaking that decision. Do not wait to make a covenant with God to follow him. Do it when you are young. Do it when you're old, too. The focus has been on college this morning, but all the same principles apply for business, retirement, And even old age, at each new season of life, there's an opportunity that opens up before us to draw a line and take a stand for Jesus. Will you use your retirement for God, for the church, or for yourself? Make a covenant with God, young and old, and speak that decision at the first opportunity to make it real. Daniel resolved. Jonathan Edwards was only 20 years old when he began his resolutions. Here are a few of them. Resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, but what tends to the glory of God. Resolved never to lose any moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. 
resolve to live with all my might while I do live. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. What resolution will you make? Every Christian can thrive at college and life when you dare to be a Daniel. Think, decide, speak. Daniel, just one Hebrew in exile, and yet he dared. He dared to think that God is God and that he is sovereign and that he can be trusted even in exile. He dared to decide. Down through human history, these two cities stand as symbols of the choice before us all, the city of God or the city of man, the city of Babylon or the city of Jerusalem. How can you be for Jerusalem when you are in Babylon? You draw a line somewhere. He took a stand and he spoke. He formulated a gospel rhetoric that articulated the covenant with God that he had made in his heart. It was this Daniel, this young man, who saw visions of the great kingdoms to come, and of the stone that breaks the kingdoms of this world in pieces and fills the whole earth, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All from this moment, this pivotal decision. Six hundred years later, a baby is born, and at his birth, wise men come traveling from the east. We cannot know for sure, but it is more than possible that those wise men were following a hope first put into that culture by a Daniel, a young student in our first chapter one. who did not flounder before the pressure of his day and age and did not cave into becoming Babylonized by the culture around him, but dared, dared to be Daniel. Let's pray together. What resolution will you make before the Lord? Use this moment to Put in your heart to resolve, to draw the line.
Our Lord God, I do pray that you would raise up a generation of Daniels. I pray, Lord, that you would grant them great faith. I pray, Lord, that they be examples to us all. I pray, Lord, that they would serve your kingdom. The kingdom that is forever. Grant us, Lord, courage. Especially in this day. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.